The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, good morning. Hello. <laughs> good morning. So, you know what? I had full intentions this morning of wearing the beautiful shirt that I got last summer, but my dryer must have done something to it because it doesn't fit quite the way it's meant to. But my heart was there, and it's really good to see you guys this morning. You know what, uh, as we get into our passage this morning, I want to share a story with you first, but I first want to just ask you to start opening up your Bibles already to John 2. That's going to be the passage that we look at as we think of how the public ministry of Jesus begins in the Gospel of John. But what I wanted to share with you is just the value of missions. I I know that for us, when when God puts people on our heart, then he wants us to do something about that. Go and bless them in the name of Christ. And as much as it blesses them, we know that the blessing is also returned as we serve Christ and as we see other people come to know him and as they feed into our life as well. Uh, My first experience of missions, uh, being on a missions team actually, was in 1992. I was on a team that went to Portugal and uh, it was mainly street ministry. And uh, we had a number of different interpreters because most of us didn't speak Spanish. I had two interpreters that I got really close with. They were a brother and sister, and uh, we became really, really good friends. Uh, this is the last day I saw them, ever saw them. It was those times where there wasn't the internet, and when you said goodbye, you said goodbye, and I'll see you in heaven. And uh, that was true, right? I know that someday I will, but I haven't seen them since that picture. And uh, so you missed them. And uh, what I remember about them is we had such a f- wonderful time serving God together, but in the evenings when really the rest of the team was ready to rest, we'd head out and uh, we'd walk around. Portugal has all these little towns, and so we'd go to these little towns, and every night there was like little festivals going on. And man, it's like the, the neighbors and the family, and it's all really good. There's music, there's great food. I had escargot, like shrimp, like, I mean, the snails, right? Like just boiled, eat those things. Oh, yum, yum. And, uh, but you know what? There's dancing and it's festive. You, you know, for a good German Mennonite boy, I had never done these things before. And, you know, it wasn't sensual or anything. It was just a good, happy celebration. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jews knew about celebrations too. There's lots of times God knows about celebration. He commands us to celebrate. And most of his parties are not like two hours or five hours long. They're like weeks. They're days. And God says, bring the best you have to me sacrifice it to me and you know what I also want to have you enjoy it eat it with your family Jews thought weddings were very very special because not only was it a time of joy it was a it was a time of thinking of the future when a messianic age would come thinking of what was in he- ahead of them yet and so weddings weddings were hugely festive and That is the scene, that's the kind of mindset we need to have as we look at our passage today. So please stand with me, and we're going to read, I'll read to you verses 1 to 11. So please stand with me, and this is John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremony washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the wine, water that they had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the, saved the best for last. This is the first miraculous of his signs. Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. May God bless his word. Please be seated. So now as we enter into John 2, the, the first environment we see Jesus in is being invited to go to a wedding, a festive occasion, a time of joy. And uh, John is very, very clear that God is very personal. Jesus loved being with people. And uh, in this gospel, as we go through it, just notice that, the, the personal nature of Christ and also the private nature that he has in relationships with people. And so we read, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. We don't know much about this environment. We can assume that there are probably hundreds of guests. This lasts for a week long. And so for Mary to know that they have no wine implies that she probably had some sort of a relationship with this couple that was close because running out of wine was really embarrassing. Like this isn't just a matter of, hey, have a party, get drunk. This is like, they're here for a week. This is how you live. This is how you entertain your guests. And if you're not hospitable, if you run out of food, if you run out of wine, it's really embarrassing. And so Mary says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. You know, just a quick note here. John actually never mentions Mary's name. If you notice that as you go through this gospel, she'll say, they always say, Jesus' mother. Dear woman, her name isn't mentioned once because the focus is always on Christ. And so she comes and she says to Jesus, they don't have any wine. She doesn't tell him what to do. She just gives him the problem. And he says, dear woman, dear woman, why do you involve me? Actually, if you were reading the Greek, the word dear is not in there. It just says woman. But the NIV has tried to soften it because just woman, why do you involve me? Sounds a little bit blunt. And, uh, but it's not. Uh, it, it's, it's just a sign of respect. Uh, it's the same word that's used when he looks at his mother from the cross and says, woman, here is your son. And then to John, John, here is your mother. It's a sign of respect and love but it also does show a little bit of distancing. It's showing that he has, a, he has a close relationship with his mom, but his mom's not meant to drive his timetable. He has a heavenly father to do that. And he's saying, it's not, it's not yet the time that I'm supposed to be involved. It says, my time has not yet come. And again, the NIV says, my time. A better translation is, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come because in John, if you hear that word throughout John, it means this is the time when Christ knew that he was going to a cross, that he was going to suffer and pay the price for our sins. This is one of the lenses that John has, and this is why he does it right at the beginning. Jesus is not surprised with what happens in his life. He knows that he was sent for a purpose, 
And that purpose is the cross. He always had in mind, I am heading to the cross. I am at a party with all these people. We're celebrating. We're having fun. But I'm here because they need me to go to the cross. He always knew that. So Mary says, doesn't make an argument, doesn't tell him what to do. She just looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. I trust him. Do whatever he tells you. And Jesus just says, hey, there's six jars here. These are big jars, 30, 20 to 30 gallons, 180 gallons of wine. And they've run out already. So I hope there's a lot of people there. Right? Like, this is, a, this is a big deal here. And he says to the servants, he says, go fill these up with water. And the servants, the Bible says, they fill it right to the brim. And then he says, go take these, go take this and, and give it to your chief master for him to taste. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us when the change happens, but it just says that they went. Can you imagine the faith of those servants? I just filled this with water. You want me to take this to my boss and tell him to drink it? Are you crazy? No comment about that. They just, yeah, this guy seems reliable. This guy, I can trust him. There's something about him. So they did it. They, they drew the wine. They gave it to their master, and their master said, I, this is like the best stuff. What's with you guys? Most of the time, people get it first thing, and then, you know, when people are a little bit out of it, you give them the weaker stuff, and you save the best for last. What a surprise. What faith. And the Bible tells us now that this is the first miracle that Jesus did. And actually, it doesn't say this is the first miracle he did. It says this is the first miraculous sign that he performed in Galilee. And that's important to understand the difference between a, what's just a miracle, which is demly, generally just a demonstration of power. When you see a miracle, you go, whoa, what a great miracle. That's amazing. When you see a sign, you still see the miracle, but you say, what a great God. A sign points to someone, something beyond the act. In John's gospel, we have seven signs that he mentions. And each sign has a specific purpose. And we see it on these banners here. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm so glad that it doesn't say, and that by believing you can go to heaven. Because that's extremely true. But here it says, you may have life in his name. People, do we have life in his name today? Do you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I need to live in your life. I'm tired of trying to live in my own. Lord, I need to be dead to myself. I want to be alive in you. Because that's why you came. And throughout John, every single sign you see points to that reality. That in Christ, we are to have life in his name. He's not just a miracle doer. There were other people in history who could do miracles. He's the one who came to save and redeem and give life that never ends. We have a great, great God. And that verse 
says, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. You know, I don't know about you, but from my context, I look at this first miracle and part of me says, isn't that a little frivolous? Like you just did wine at a banquet. Wouldn't you have done something different? Like, you know, people could misinterpret Jesus, what you're trying to do with this miracle. Uh, for, the, for the Jews, definitely, wine had the symbol of God's joy and God's blessing all throughout the Old Testament. When you hear the word wine, it's, it's associated with that. But, yeah, doesn't it seem a little bit frivolous? Not at all, not at all. So much that this sign is what helped the disciples put their faith in Christ. They had already followed him. We'd already met the five people in chapter one, right, that, that saw Jesus went to his home. But this is the first thing in scripture where it says the disciples put their faith in him. In him. Not in just his powers or his ability. They put their, their faith in him. So again, I just want to highlight a little bit difference between a miracle and a sign. I, I, what comes to mind for me when I see Jesus turning water into wine is I also remember Moses. And Moses, when he went to go talk with Pharaoh, uh, the first plague, right? This didn't call it a miracle. This is a plague of judgment, is turning water into blood. And you know, what was meant to happen from that miracle, that plague, that act of power, wasn't for people to bow down to Moses. It was to bow down to God. Get the difference? Jesus does a sign. We worship him because he's God. Other people do miracles. They hopefully point to someone greater than them still. So in this, at least for me, that, that comes to mind here that the disciples might have even had that in mind as far as Moses turning water into blood. But I think for them, the reason why they were drawn to Christ and the reason that they started putting his faith in him is because he had a sign for them that was predicted in the Old Testament for days to come. And that was that there was a Messiah coming. A messianic age was about to be entered into. And there's many verses throughout Scripture that reference this. And Isaiah 25, 6 to 8 is one of those. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Like, this represents joy. With the coming of God, there is going to be an abundance of joy. Where this wedding ran out of wine, Jesus comes in and he's got it to the max. He's got wine to no get out. Just won't stop. But you know what, what I like about Isaiah is it keeps going on and, and just a little bit down it also says, and he will swallow up death forever. This Messiah isn't just going to bring joy. He's going to bring freedom. The Israelites knew a lot about being in bondage, thinking about Moses, right? And freeing the Israelites from Egypt. They had experienced bondage in many different ways. But here was a promise of a Messiah who was going to come bring freedom, not from other people, but from their sins. And they were looking forward to this Messiah. And we know that this type of freedom, though, also came with a cost. It wasn't an easy thing. And uh, when we think of Moses, and you think of those ten plagues, if you're familiar with the story, you know that the last plague was the death of the firstborn son. And you know that at that time, God had told his people that this night, 
For every family, I want you to take a young lamb, a, a lamb without any blemishes, and at twilight, you're going to sacrifice this lamb, and you're going to take some of that blood, and you're going to put it over the doorposts of your house, and you're going to eat that lamb in the evening with your family. And at night, when my angel of judgment comes to kill all the firstborn animals and all the firstborn men, your house will be passed over. There will be no judgment on your house. That angel will pass over. And Exodus tells us that this is a festival that we're supposed to celebrate continually over and over, a lasting ordinance to the Lord. So we know that Jesus has been to this festival a number of times. And all the Israelites are familiar with this. And in John 1, last week when uh, Terry was speaking, he, he read to us John 1, verse 29. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First chapter in John. John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right from the get-go again, we know that Jesus has a redemptive perspective. John, as he writes, has a redemptive perspective. This gospel is written so that you can know that God has a plan to save you. And Jesus knew his role in that. The temple was a hugely important place in the lives of Israelites, specifically because it was a representative, it, was, it represented Christ dwelling among them, not Christ, God dwelling with them. So the temple was hugely important, and this is where the Passover, every year, the people were supposed to come to celebrate the Passover and to have that sacrifice. This is a picture of a, a model of what the temple grounds would have looked like, and uh, it's important to know that, again, this was a hugely important building for the Israelites. Jesus has a very close connection with this location, uh, with this building. Right? Not necessarily this one. This is different than maybe what Jesus saw when he was young. But if you remember, when he was 12 years old, his parents couldn't find him, and they were all nervous. And uh, he's, when they finally found him, he said, why were you scared? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? This is home. This place of God's dwelling, this is home. This place where the Passover happens and sacrifice needs to be made so sins can be forgiven, this is home. And I know my role in my home. And I'm going to pay a price here. I want to show you a little picture so you can understand a little bit about what is happening in this next scene in, in uh, chapter 2 when it says that Jesus clears the temple. There's the, the temple grounds and there's the inner courts and then there's the outer courts or the courts of the Gentile. And in the inner courts, you've got the temple building, the priest court, the court of Israel, the court of women. And then all around it, you have what's called the court of the Gentiles. And so that was the only place where people who were not Jews could come. And it was hugely important because this was a place where they could come, they were welcome to still be part of what God was doing in that temple, part of God's dwelling. God has always had a focus on all nations, always had that focus. And so it's important to understand that this next scene takes place in the area called the Court of the Gentiles, a place where people were supposed to be able to come and learn to worship God, ended up being a place that angered God's heart. And that's what we're going to be looking at in these next verses. 
This is where the public ministry of Jesus begins. And it's not a soft start. It's not the way John portrays it. This is, this is harsh. This is seeing God raw. Christ raw and personal and angry. And it's a holy anger. You know, in, uh, in the other Gospels, all four Gospels mention this taking place in the temple. Uh, the other three Gospels put it just before Jesus' uh, time of the Passion and the Crucifixion. John puts it earlier. Some people say there's two, most people two occurrences of this, but most people believe, no, it's the same story, but John in his literary style puts it in the beginning because he wants to give us a lens to look through the rest of the book. And so here we see Jesus, and I think in the other Gospels it, it uses the word teach, it uses the word Jesus said, it says, get out of here, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. I, I don't think we can read it that way with John. John says, get these out of here! How dare you turn my father's house into a market! Because God was mad. And it was a holy rage because he knew that people were being drawn away from God. It was like spitting in God's face. And this is my father's house. Do you understand what you're doing? No. They didn't. And that's why we have a gracious and giving and merciful God. And when Jesus acted this way and said those words, it says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for your house consumes me. God was passionate about his dad and making sure that nothing got in the way of blocking worship for his father. And in this area where it was the Gentiles, that people who would possibly come to know Christ wouldn't be distracted by the vanities of man. The, those words are reflective, come in Psalm 69, verse 9, and, and the words immediately after, zeal for your house consumes me, says this, and the insults of those who insulted you fall on me. Jesus was very, very personally connected with what took place in the temple. And he knew what needed to be done there that there need to be the sacrifice for sins, and here people are selling things for profit, getting in the way of people really understanding who God is and what he wants to do for us. So most people, from what we can tell, they left respectfully, because, you know what, what are you going to do when you're just caught red-handed doing wrong? When someone comes to you with moral authority and just points it out, if there's anything of God working in you, you're just going to back away and say, you're right, I was, I was wrong. And then we have here, it says the Jews, and here typically it means the Jewish leaders demanded of Christ, what miraculous sign can you show, can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Can you believe the audacity of these men? Okay, they know what they're doing wrong, but they said, show us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus says to them, he says this. He says, you know what? Destroy this body, destroy this temple, and it will be rebuilt in three days. And they look at him and scoff. And, what are you talking about? This, this temple's been rebuilt for 46 years already. You're going to tell me that it's going to be destroyed and in three days it's going to 
could be built again, you're crazy. But we know that the Bible says that Jesus said this temple was his body. He wasn't talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about his body. And so another really important thing here for the rest of this gospel, John puts it right in the beginning. And that's why I think he brought this story early on is to help us see that Jesus also had a resurrection perspective. He knew that he was going to die on a cross, but by saying this temple will be built up again, he had hope. <laughs> he had joy. He knew what was going to come for all people because of what his father was having him do. And there was going to be a celebration that beat any wedding you could ever go to. There would be an abundance of joy, abundance of mercy and love and fellowship, and that's what he has in store for us. And you know what? It's that this prediction became true, that you can have a strong assurance of your faith. If this didn't happen, forget what you believe. If it happened, stand firm, because this is the biggest proof that you need. Jesus predicted it would happen, his death and his resurrection, and it took place. The next verse, it says that the disciples, um, after he, he didn't, they didn't remember these things right away. They didn't understand what took place. But here, when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things to them and believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. You know, I found it interesting. In this little passage, it says, the disciples remembered the zeal for your house will consume me. They had the word of God stored in their heart. They remembered that. But this time when it says they remembered, it was after the fact. It wasn't something that they understood in the moment. They needed help with that. And John 14, later on, it tells us that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he sends us a comforter. And this comforter is meant to teach us all things and remember everything I told you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, and to remember everything I told you. So the reason the disciples could remember this truth later on in life is because of the blessing of the Holy Spirit to say, God was working your life before. You didn't understand what he was saying. I'm going to help you understand it now. So these are two questions I have for you, and the first one is this. What has the Holy Spirit taught you about Jesus? In what way have you been blessed to know your Savior more, to allow a sign of some sort to point you to the character of God? What has is, what is the Holy Spirit taught you about Jesus? And that's primarily going to be through his word. And the other question is, what have you learned about Christ in hindsight? Do you ever take time and say, you know what, maybe there's things in my life that I missed before? And if I let the Holy Spirit help me look back, he might teach me some things about Christ that I need to know. That's why we teach a course every now and then called Understanding Your Story with Christ. It's meant to help you look back and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what did I not understand before that I'm meant to understand now so that I can love you more, be more grateful, and prove to be more faithful as I see your faithfulness in my life? So the last part here is just there's three little verses, and these little verses say a lot. And the first part is that it says these words in verse 23. Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed in his name. Many people. Crowds of people. You're going to find throughout John, 
God. Christ is not concerned about having the masses come to him. He serves them. He, he puts out a sign, but he, he's concerned really about his disciples, that they're getting it. He often leaves crowds in order to be alone with his disciples, to be alone with God. And this word believed, it does mean trust. If you looked at what the Greek means, it means trust, rely, have confidence in. So the Bible says there are people who, who saw and they believed in his name. And name reflects character. They believed in who Christ was. And this is the kind of heart-wrenching part. Jesus didn't believe those believing. The next verses say this, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men and what was in men. Important thing to realize is that while our Bible, while the NIV translates two words differently, believe and entrust, they're the same Greek word. They're exactly the, the same word. So it's more or less people saying, I trust God. God didn't trust them. I believe in God. I don't believe you. You know why? Because I know your heart. And I know at this point in the story, you haven't received redemption yet. You don't even understand your own wickedness. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is more treacherous than anything else and is desperate. Who can know it? When Christ isn't in our life, our heart deceives us. You might think you're doing good and you're leading towards death. That's the direction of all life. You think you're doing well, but you're leading to death. The only way that you can begin to know your heart is when God transforms it and takes a heart of stone and makes it soft. Then you can start understanding your heart. You can start seeing the sins that lead you away from God, and you can see the life that's bringing you to God. Miracles don't deal with the sin issue. When people see great acts, they can be inspired for a while. They can get all enamored. We can do that. But if it doesn't get you to understand a sign that this takes us to Jesus, and Jesus' aim is always to redeem us, restore us, eventually resurrect us for life with him, it doesn't matter. You're always going to be going in the wrong direction. Miracles don't deal with the sin issue. And so these little verses, right at the beginning of John, after, and I, we, you're going to see all these beautiful things going to take place in these coming months as we go through John. You need to know that Jesus was going through this whole time saying, I know your hearts. I know eventually you're going to say, crucify me. No matter how well-intended you are in the, more, in the moment, right? Soon enough, you're going to say, crucify me. In the next chapter, as we get into it next week, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, obviously you're a good teacher with miraculous signs. No one could do this if you weren't of God or in somehow with God. And Jesus says to him, you know, unless you were born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. I take that to mean, unless you have Christ in your heart, you might see miracles, but you're not going to see the kingdom. You're not going to understand what God's doing. You're always just going to see powerful acts that make you in awe for a while, but you won't see the kingdom. The last question I have for you before I ask the team to come up is just this. When you look at the life of Christ, do you see miracles or do you see signs? Do you see signs that point you to a God who loves you, who's been willing to die for you, 
and also to rise from the dead for you so that your sins can be forgiven and that you can have life with him. And I pray throughout this series in the Gospel of John that you see signs and you're drawn to life with God. Awesome, Tim Tapak.